Now, I want to begin uh, my message this afternoon with a pair of questions. What is a disciple? And are you one? I'll say those again. What is a disciple? And are you one? You know, every Sunday, our church, we end our worship services by reciting Jesus' words in Matthew 28, which say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Well, what is a disciple? And do you think you are one? You know, there's a difference between being a fan and being a disciple. Um, I am a fan of the comedian Chris Farley. Do you guys know Chris Farley? Everyone my age certainly knows Chris Farley. He's a funny guy. Uh, I watched all of his movies. I laughed. I even quote him nowadays when I'm around friends, and I know that quoting a good Chris Farley fat guy in a little coat might get some laughs when I'm in a group of people. In fact, today my wife made Sloppy Joes for our family for lunch, and we sang the Adam Sandler Sloppy Joe song, and I danced around the kitchen like Chris Farley dressed as a lunch lady. Chris Farley's great. I am a fan of Chris Farley, but I'm not a disciple of Chris Farley. Well, Chris Farley did consider himself to be a disciple of someone. He called himself a literal, quote, literal disciple of John Belushi. Do you guys know who John Belushi is? Chris Farley said, quote, I wanted to be like John Belushi in every possible way. And Farley did exactly that. The similarities of the lives of Chris Farley and John Belushi are almost identical. Just like Belushi, Chris Farley was a very physical comedian used his body, he used his whole body to, to, to get a laugh. Also like Belushi, uh, Chris Farley began his career with a comedy group in Chicago called Second City. Just like Belushi, Chris Farley got his major break on Saturday Night Live. Just like Belushi, Chris Farley had huge success in movies. And just like John Belushi, Chris Farley had a reputation of partying harder than anyone in Hollywood. His drugs of choice were cocaine, alcohol, heroin, opioids, and overeating. The same drugs of choice as John Belushi. And just like John Belushi, Chris Farley died of a drug overdose at age 33. You see, Farley was not just a fan of John Belushi, he was a disciple of him. And the trajectory of his life and his death was set because of who he chose to be a disciple of. You see, there's a difference between being a fan and being a disciple. Sam Alberry writes, you can be a fan of Jesus quite easily. In many parts of the Western world, there is still much about Jesus that an unbelieving culture can admire, can be into. Some would say they like some of Jesus' ethical teaching. Some would say there's elements of justice that they see in Jesus' teaching that they quite like. Others would revere some of his spiritual insights or just the beauty of the way he spoke. It's very easy to be a fan of Jesus, particularly if we think he is there to kind of rubber stamp our agenda and to give us what we want. But a fan is not a Christian because a fan is not a disciple. Dallas Willard says that a disciple is anyone whose ultimate goal is to live as Jesus would if Jesus were in their place. Jesus, you see, does not fall into submission to our agendas and our desires. Rather, our agendas and our desires fall into submission to the way of Jesus. This is the difference between being a fan and being a disciple. 
You see, just like Chris Farley's discipleship to John Belushi led him down a very specific path, our discipleship to Jesus will lead us down a path as well, a path that Jesus says leads to eternal life, an abundant life, but a life that is costly as well. So we're looking at John chapter 12 today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, and I've got to give a little bit of setup here. Um, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. You guys remember that? John chapter 11, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. He does it publicly. So everybody sees this. And uh, this essentially, this made Jesus' popularity sort of hit a fever pitch. I mean, when people saw him raise someone from the dead, the crowds went wild. And they began following him. The crowd started following him around. The crowds were everywhere. And the Pharisees saw this, the religious authorities, and they said, whoa, 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 this is getting out of control. And after Jesus raised Lazarus and the crowd sort of swarmed Jesus, that is the exact moment when the religious authorities began plotting to kill Jesus. Well, John chapter 12, you see Jesus enter Jerusalem for Passover week. And the crowds swarm Jesus. In my mind, I imagine, you know, I think of celebrities and fans and paparazzi, how they swarm them if they find out what hotel the celebrity's staying at. So why celebrities use fake names, you know, because if Harry Styles, if the teenage girls in any particular city find out where Harry Styles is staying, it's going to be absolute mayhem, right? Well, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came down from the Mount of Olives and people found out. They said, oh, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives. And they all rushed to this place and they swarmed in around Jesus. And they're just, just crowds around Jesus and they begin waving palm branches and they start shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting the scripture, but then they add this line, the king of Israel. And palm branches were a national symbol of Israel. So it would have been the equivalent of waving an American flag. So Jesus comes into town and they're waving their palm branches. I mean, it would be the equivalent of waving a national flag. And not only that, they said, this is the Messiah, the King of Israel. Okay, so their, their excitement for Jesus was driven by their politics. This was a very nationalistic celebration of who Jesus was. Their excitement for Jesus was driven by their political agenda. They had seen Jesus' power and his authority. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And now they're, they, they're putting their political and their national hopes onto Jesus. They say, this guy could be useful for our agenda. They wanted him to be their powerful king who would bring an end to Roman occupation. And this was the hope that they, was, they were putting on Jesus. But then Jesus does something very strange. He gets on a big, black, huge stallion. No. He gets on a baby donkey and starts riding down the mountain into Jerusalem. This is a shocking sign of humility. This is the first sign that Jesus might not be the type of king that they were hoping he would be. I mean, can you imagine uh, Mayor Eric Adams, you know, his inauguration happened a few weeks ago. Can you imagine if at his inauguration he like strolls down Broadway on little Sebastian? Anybody know little Sebastian? Or maybe, uh, or, you know, Eric riding a, ch a child's bicycle, you know, with the knees up to his ears. Could you imagine how silly that would be? That's not what a mayor does. That's not what an authority does. What kind of king rides on a baby donkey? Well, for one, this was prophesied in Zechariah 9 that the Messiah would come on a young donkey. But no one understood this at the time. They were too caught up in their fervor. 
Nevertheless, nevertheless, the Jewish crowds are in a frenzy. They're saying, let's go, Jesus. Take down those Romans. We want a king. Be powerful for us. But then something very perplexing happens. Remember, he's coming to be the king of Israel. This is verse 20. This is where we pick up our text today. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast, meaning the feast of Passover week, were some Greeks. Those aren't Jewish people. What are they doing there? What are they doing at a Jewish feast? Verse 21 says, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So, ha, we find out why they're in Jerusalem during Passover. They are in Jerusalem during Passover because they know Jesus is going to be there, and they want to see Jesus. And all throughout the Gospel of John, the word see, sight, it's not like seeing something with your eyes. See means to believe, to follow. They're seeking to follow Jesus. And so, they, and they're trying to find out if Jesus is worth following, if, if he's worth their discipleship. And it says, verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And then Jesus uh, comes out and he answers these Greeks. And the question we have to ask, okay, what, there's suspense here. What's he going to tell them? What's he going to tell these Greeks who want to follow him? Because isn't Jesus the king of Israel? He's come for Israel. What's he going to tell these Greeks? I mean, they're asking what it means to be a disciple. What is Jesus going to tell them that it takes to be his disciple? This is what Jesus says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so this is what Jesus tells them. He says, if you want to follow me, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. Okay, what in the world does that mean? First thing I want you to see this afternoon is this. Being a disciple of Jesus is costly. See, one of the things that you've just got to respect Jesus about, uh, respect about Jesus, is Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything, does he? People come to Jesus and they say, how, do, how can I become your disciple? And he doesn't give them the sales pitch where he minimizes the cost and exaggerates the benefits, does he? He says, if you want to bear fruit and have a meaningful life, you have to be like a seed. You have to die, be buried into the ground so that through your death you can bring life to others. <laughs> He says, oh, do you want to find life? You have to lose your life for my sake if you want to find it. In the other Gospels, Jesus says similar things. You want to be my disciple? Pick up your cross and follow me. You know, every couple of weeks, I get a notification on my phone that asks me to update my phone. You guys get all this as well, right? And before it can update, I have to read the Apple terms and conditions. And it says, have you read them? Did I read it? Of course not. Now, are there probably some things in that Apple terms of agreement that, uh, and conditions that pretty much amount to me selling my soul to a corporation? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely in there. Um, Apple, Google, Facebook, they all hide the actual costs of their products deep inside these long agreements full of legal jargon. Why? Because they want to show you, here's the product you can get, and they want to kind of bury the things about it that you don't really, you'd rather not know. Parts of your privacy and all this other stuff that you're just giving up. Listen, Jesus is not an, uh, G, the following Jesus is not like signing, you know, an Apple terms and conditions. 
Jesus doesn't hide the cost of discipleship somewhere deep. It's not where you start following Jesus and then later you find out, oh, that's actually costly. Jesus leads with the costs. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, you must lose your life for my sake. Jesus is not hiding anything. He tells us, right, what we're getting into. In the very next section of this chapter, verses 27 through 36, Jesus prays to his Father in front of everyone. He says, God, Father, I don't want to die on a cross. But if this is what it takes to glorify your name, Father, so be it. And the crowds are looking and they're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And then he turns to the crowd and Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. When we say Jesus is lifted up, we don't mean like we're praising Jesus. We mean literally Jesus was lifted up on a cross so that he could die for us. You see, a disciple, this is what we have to understand. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? That means we follow Jesus. And where did Jesus go and what did Jesus do? Jesus went to the grave. And he died for us. He completely gave himself up for us. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to give up ourselves. Now, we can't die for the sins of the world or even our own sins. Only Jesus does that, and he did it once and for all. But we follow a Savior who the way he brings life is by giving his away. Here's what this means in practical terms. Jesus is saying to us that there are going to be times in your life, if you choose to be a disciple of Jesus, there will be times in your life where it feels like being a disciple of Jesus is killing you. There will be times in your life where not following Jesus might feel like an easier or more natural path. And in those moments, you deny yourself. You deny what feels natural and you follow Jesus. Sam Albury, once again, offers some diagnostic questions that can help us count the cost of following Jesus, some questions that can help us pinpoint the areas where we must deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Because I could give examples and say, maybe it's this part of your life where you're not following. Maybe it's this part of where you need to die to self. But the truth is, I don't know what's in your heart. So let's look at these questions. And I want you to be honest with yourself as you hear those. Answer these questions. What does God love that you're tempted to hate? And what does God hate that you're tempted to love? Because being a disciple will mean loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Here's another question. What does God want you to let go of that you are tempted to hold on to? And what does God want you to hold on to that you are tempted to let go of? And Sam Albury writes, and I would affirm his words. He says, I hate those questions because in all honesty, the answer is tons of stuff. But God is showing us what we need to do to deny self. What we need to do is to deny self, to take up our crosses and follow him. We live in a world that says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. We live in a world that says, be true to yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. We live in a world that says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. That's the cost of discipleship, that we follow him, we submit to him, and we trust him. 
being a disciple is costly. But being a disciple, the second thing I want you to see, requires a response. It requires a decision. You know, the, the, uh, this chapter, uh, the chapter 12, it's the final chapter of the Gospel of John that reco- records Jesus' public ministry. So the book of John, the Gospel of John is split into two halves. First half is called the Book of Signs. It goes all the way through chapter 12. The second half, we'll start next week, starts with 13 and goes onward. But the first half is Jesus' public ministry. The second half is Jesus' ministry to his disciples and then his death and resurrection. And so this chapter marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. And at the very end of this chapter, sort of his last public moment, Jesus offers an invitation to follow him. He gives them an opportunity to respond to him, not just celebrate him, not just praise him, not just tell him what they want from him, not to, you know, cover him with palm branches, but to actually follow him and be his disciples. Jesus says, will you follow me? And then he retreats away with his disciples, and the public will not see Jesus again until he's standing on trial before Pontius Pilate. His last words to the public are, will you follow me? And Jesus leaves them with an invitation. This is it, John 12, 30, verse 35. It says, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Speaking of himself, he's the light of the world. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. But while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. See, Jesus ended his public ministry by asking people to respond to him. And the rest of this chapter, John chapter 12, John pretty much shows us that most people chose not to follow Jesus. And the question we have to ask is why? Why why, Why do these people not follow Jesus? Well, there's a few reasons. The first is there are some who simply love the darkness. I think of Judas. He simply loved money more than Jesus, and so he betrayed him. He loved the darkness more than he loved Jesus. Second, there's a second group of people that just were plain opposed to Jesus. They didn't like his teachings. They didn't agree with his teachings, and so they just rejected him outright. This is the Pharisees. Now, these types of people are in the world today. There are people who love darkness. And because they love darkness, it is hard for them to see Jesus. And there are people who simply just don't like Jesus. They don't like the teachings of Christianity. They don't like what Jesus teaches. And so they just reject Jesus outright. But here's the thing. I think often we Christians spend most of our time picking fights with these two groups. But the real tragedy lies in the next two groups. Listen to what John describes another group like. He says, many... Even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This group believed in Jesus. They thought Jesus was cool. They thought Jesus was great. But there were social costs involved with following Jesus that were too great for them. They said, ah, Jesus, I think he's great, but if I follow him all the way, I'm gonna, people are going to think I'm weird. And there might be some things that I miss out on because I'm following Jesus. They cared more for the glory and the acceptance of their peers than they did for the glory and the acceptance of God. And so they did not follow Jesus. The other group that does not choose to be disciples of Jesus is the crowds that were shouting Hosanna to Jesus. Have you ever wondered, has it ever crossed your mind, how the same group of people on Palm Sunday, 
who were waving palm branches at Jesus, calling him their king, were the same people likely that were shouting just Friday, you know, Sunday to Friday, same people just a few days later that would be shouting, crucify him. How do you go from Hosanna, <laughs> blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him in one week? Here's what changed. This crowd couldn't control Jesus. Jesus would not be their mascot, and so they killed him. They wanted a political leader. They wanted a leader who was strong and powerful and cared for their group and no other groups. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and their first thought was, boy, he could be useful to our cause. It'd be good to have him on our team. So what they tried to do is they said, Jesus has all this power and all this authority, and they saw Jesus for who he was. They saw that he had power and authority, and they said, Jesus, here's our agenda. Carry it forward. But then Jesus did these strange things. He didn't take up their agenda and their cause. He got on a baby donkey. Like, who does that? Then he starts talking to the Greeks inviting Greeks to follow him. They, went, they said, no, 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 Jesus, our cause was you were going to take up our cause. You're going to be the king of Israel, not the savior for the whole world. We want political freedom, not spiritual freedom, especially not spiritual freedom for the Greeks and certainly not for the Romans. But see, what happened was they quickly realized that Jesus wasn't coming into Jerusalem that week to serve their cause. And they realized he was no longer useful to him because they couldn't control him. So they rejected him and they discarded him. They were fans of Jesus when they thought that Jesus could serve their cause, but they were never disciples. And they never submitted themselves to Jesus's cause when they realized that it was different from theirs. You see, we see this today. We see this everywhere today. When this is when we are tempted to pick up, pick parts of Jesus, pick and choose parts of Jesus that we want to highlight pick and choose parts of Jesus that we want to obey and then the parts of Jesus that we, eh, we'll, we'll downplay those, not talk about those so much. Progressives will talk about, uh, they'll talk about Jesus' love. They'll talk about his justice. But watch, they'll downplay his ethics and his claims to be the only way to God. Conservatives might talk about his ethics and his exclusive claims, but then they'll downplay the ethics and the teachings that seem out of step with their ideology. I don't say this with self-righteous judgment. I say this with full recognition that I'm guilty as well. There are parts of Jesus that suit my life and my desires and my agenda. There are parts of Jesus that make my life very, very good. And in those areas, I want to wave the palm branches and I want to say, bring your best to Jesus. But then truthfully, there are parts of Jesus that frustrate my life so much. I'm like, why did you have to say that, Jesus? You know what I mean? Like, there, I read the Gospels, or I'm getting ready, prepared to preach. I'm like, I got to say, Jesus, why'd you say that? You're putting me in a tough position. Why are, you, are there times when I go, Jesus, why are you asking me to do this? Why have you called me to these hard things that feel so difficult, and it feels like it's killing me? And the truth is, is it's easy to follow Jesus in Bethany when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, isn't it? But it's a lot harder to follow Jesus in Golgotha when he's dying on a cross. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you got to follow me all the way down. And if you follow me all the way down, I'll bring you all the way back up. That's what the resurrection is. 
you know, the Crusades, you know, when anytime somebody wants to pick on the church, what do they bring up? The Crusades. I mean, the Crusades are widely recognized as the, one of the worst chapters in the history of Christianity. And the church, during the Crusades, led the way in starting religious wars that killed many, many people. Not a good thing. It is a stain on the history of the church. Well, how did it happen? How did Christians take up these violent causes and ruthless wars? Well, there are stories from the Crusades where soldiers would come to faith in Jesus and they would go to be baptized but when they, would be, when they would go to be baptized, their whole bodies would be fully immersed in the water. But they would hold their swords up so that their swords didn't go under the water. And essentially what they were saying was, Jesus, you can have all of me, but I'm going to do my own thing when it comes to the sword. They essentially said, you can have all of me, Jesus, except that part. And it was the part that they did not surrender to Jesus that did damage to themselves and great damage to the world. You see, when we hold back even one thing from Jesus, we're holding back everything. Being a disciple of Jesus requires that we respond to what he's calling us to. And the response is to lose our lives and to give all of ourselves to him. We're all tempted to hold something back. What is that thing for you? Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's ambition or your standing in the community. Whatever it is, we've got to yield all of our lives to Jesus. And we're not going to do that perfectly, and we're not going to do that always consistently, but nevertheless, this is the call of discipleship that we must respond to. Jesus asks for nothing less than to come before everything else in our lives, and Jesus is worthy of nothing less. God, help us to not be soldiers in the crusades that baptize every part of our lives except for the sword or our finances or our dating life or our relationships. The response to discipleship is to give all of yourself, yield all of yourself to Jesus. And John actually issues a warning. You may not think this is serious, but John issues a warning at the end of chapter 12 to the people who don't respond. He quotes Isaiah and he says, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. John is not saying that Jesus is actively blinding people from faith so that they won't believe. He's saying that if you reject the invitation of Jesus enough, your heart will eventually grow cold to the invitation of Jesus and eventually God will say, if that's what you want, I'll give you over to your desires. Read Romans 1. You see, being a disciple of Jesus requires a response, and it's urgent that you make that response, that you respond today. Will you yield your life to him? Being a disciple requires a response, and you're like, okay, this is a little heavy. This is a somber sermon. Here's the payoff. There's always a payoff when it comes to Jesus. Here's the good news. This is what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls on the earth, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's the last thing that you need to see about being a disciple of Jesus, is that being a disciple of Jesus leads to life. 
See, following Jesus requires a death, yes. But that death comes with a resurrection. You die to the old self, which is painful, but by God's grace and his power and his authority, you are then made alive to the new self, which is far better. And here's some questions I want to leave you with this afternoon. Do you trust, as we read every week, do you trust that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus? Do you believe that? That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus? Now, if you believe that, what could be better than Jesus being in control of everything in your life? You're like, I, don't, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want you to be in control of these things, but not this thing. Let me ask you, what could be better than Jesus being in control of everything in your life? What, just be honest for a moment, what aspect of your life is going to improve or be better by you running it and not Jesus? You're like, what, my dating life? life? No. My personal wealth, my finance, no. What aspect of your life is going to improve by you running it and not Jesus? Do you really believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth that has been given to him? What aspect of your life do you think Jesus would make a mess of that you would handle brilliantly? The truth is there's really nothing. Our fears of letting Jesus have all of our lives are unfounded if we really believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. If you trust these things, then following him, then you realize that following Jesus may come with some great costs, and it will come with some great costs. But if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, we believe that by following him and yielding ourselves to him, it will lead to the greatest possible life. Remember the principle of the grain. If a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If you follow Jesus, it may feel at times like he's killing you. But you must be convinced that he is leading you into life. Remember the principle of the grain. Every humiliation, every setback, every tear, every suffering, every loss, every sorrow, God, by his grace, will bring them into joy, life, and peace. I started this sermon with a story about Chris Farley. <laughs> well, Chris Farley followed John Belushi every single step of his life, and it led to the same outcome of John, as John Belushi's life. Overdose at 33. For disciples of Jesus... We follow Jesus at every step so that we can have the same ending as Christ. We follow him into the cross, and we follow him into the grave so that we can follow him into the resurrection and into the new life. This is the promise of the gospel. We go down so that Jesus can bring us up. Let me pray for us. God, your word says that there is a cost to being your disciple. You told us to pick up our cross and follow you. You told us that whoever wants to gain our lives, we must lose it for your sake. And God, I confess that I don't always believe that, that I don't always live by that. Um, 
I confess that I doubt that quite often. And I can easily convince myself that I might be better in control of my life than you. But Jesus, I confess to you today that I believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And so therefore, I'm going to trust that if you control every aspect of my life, it will be for my good and for your glory. And God, I pray that our church, that we would give our lives to you and yield them to your will and to your way and trust that you are leading us into eternal life and into abundant life for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.